0: Today is April 30th, 2009, and my guest today is Alan Wolfe, professor of political science and director of the Boise Center for Religion and American Public Life at Boston College. Alan, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you. Our topic for today is liberalism and how you describe and defend it in your latest book, The Future of Liberalism. The book's a fascinating intellectual tour through the last 225 years or so of really Western civilization political philosophy, politics, economics, and it focuses on liberalism and its opponents. Uh, Let's start with your definition, and uh, some of your focus is on the importance of semantics. Mm -hmm. Uh, You talk about three aspects of liberalism, substantive, procedural, and temperamental. What are those, and and how does liberalism fit in there?
1: Yeah, uh, liberalism has a substance. That is, it has a set of core principles. And as I define the core principle of liberalism, it's this that liberals are committed to the substantive proposition that as many people as possible should have as much control over their lives as feasible and we can talk about that and what that means cuz i think it's directly related to questions that economists address also but that's the substantive you know part and what i say there is essentially that substantively liberalism is in competition with other ideologies so if you're substantively a liberal You're not a conservative or a socialist or any one of a number of other uh, competing substantive views of the world. But I also say that liberalism is about procedures. It's about commitments to open government, separation of powers, checks and balances, and things like that, suspicion of absolutist rule. And uh, that is much broader. One can be a political or a substantive conservative and be a, a procedural liberal. And finally, I also talk about a temperament, an openness to the world, a willingness to experiment and be inventive, uh, which is a psychological category, really. And I sort of jokingly say that there are a lot of Manhattan leftists who have tenure and live in rent-controlled departments who temperamentally are not liberals because they're so completely temperamentally shut off to changing anything or to experimenting with with their privileges. So those are the three basic aspects.
0: And you trace some of that back to an, an old debate between uh, Rousseau and Kant, mm-hmm. which um, some of us studied a little bit in college, and some of us who did forgot most of it. Yeah. So uh, explain what their dispute was mm-hmm. and why it's still relevant. And it still is relevant.
1: Oh, it still is very much relevant. Uh, well, Rousseau's a fascinating figure because uh, uh, for a while, uh, Rousseau was viewed as a devil by conservatives, uh Uh, Edmund Burke uh, called him the insane Socrates of uh, the French Revolution, and the idea of a general will was held to be the foundation of totalitarianism. These days, Rousseau is loved by conservatives uh, because he was very, very critical of uh, over-civilization and held that people had sort of natural basic uh, predispositions, lived in harmony with nature, and so on. Um, And uh, Uh, So I I was interested in Rousseau and and Kant, who essentially answered Rousseau, because I wanted to get out of the liberal-conservative ways of thinking that basically assumes that liberalism came into being during the New Deal or the Progressive Period. It actually has much deeper roots. So one of my basic arguments is that uh, Rousseau's idea that we're sort of better off in a state of nature and that everything that's uh, civilized and artificial uh, is bad... um, is, I think, one of the core convictions against which liberalism emerged. Liberalism emerged to defend the idea of culture against nature. To defend the idea that people are capable of transforming nature and using it for their own purposes. And this is the potential uh, value I find in Immanuel Kant, who constantly talks about, you know, words like civilization and culture. I'm sure they sound much better if they're culture and civilization, you know, but but you, you know, you get the idea. They just sound much more impressive in German, I'm sure. But uh, you get the idea that it's what we do. It's what we take from nature and make for ourselves. That's what's really valuable. And I think that's that's a fundamental liberal idea. Without that idea, notions about improvement are impossible. Rousseau hated the idea of improvement, uh which uh, he called in his French perfectibilité but is usually translated as improvement. He hated the idea of improvement. Without a sense that we can improve upon the world we find, it seems to me that uh, we can't do much of anything and that there would be no use for liberals in a world that didn't uh, have a priority uh, upon the idea of improvement. It's, it's a, an idea, by the way, also associated with John Locke, that we, we take the land and we transform it through our labor and uh, um, get the value out of it that way.
0: Well, it's also an idea associated with Adam Smith, yeah. where uh, I didn't realize this. Smith and, and Kant were born within a year of each other. And as I was reading your discussion of Kant, I couldn't help but think of Adam Smith and uh, the richer conception of Smith that, that the theory of moral sentiments has. Uh, we're in the middle of a, of a book club on, e- on Econ Talk where we're discussing the theory of moral sentiments. And it's a neglected work, and I think it uh, gives a much richer picture of mankind that Smith, that Smith intended. But Smith clearly saw his enterprise of the human the human enterprises involving uh, the transformation of of the world around us
1: oh that's very much so i mean i don't I'm not fluent in German, but there's another term in German that people sometimes refer to, and it's called das Adam Smith problem <laughs> you know which is a problem of how the the person who wrote the wrote the Wealth of nations also write the theory of moral sentiments and uh, you know there's a wide consensus out there among Smith scholars, that both books are crucially important. That one really can't be understood without the other. Uh, that Smith is very much a liberal, I certainly think so. And as you say, very much a product of the Enlightenment. For Kant, it was the German Enlightenment. For Smith, it was the Scottish Enlightenment. But it's very much the same part of almost a globalized European world of the late 18th century. It's a fundamental Enlightenment idea.
0: And it's still with us. You know, One of the things I really liked uh, is your discussion of the word artificial, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Rousseau was, a, was in favor of the natural, con- right. defended the artificial. Artificial in our lingo, in modern jargon, has a very negative connotation. That's right. But its roots are artifice, which yep. is about that human enterprise of transformation, and art, which is yep. we do like. So right. there's a natural tension there that uh, I think that's still there.
1: Yeah, and it, again, it's uh, still there in German too, where the artifice is kunst or art. Um, And, you know, in the context of Kant's time, when he was writing about artifice, he really meant this idea, like an artist, you know, takes uh, a picture of nature and turns it into something beautiful. Uh, um, That's what we do through society. We take the raw materials and turn them into something beautiful. That's the meaning of artifice.
0: And an an artisan is uh, just, you know, a worker in in those days to to a large extent, and it was not – Looked down on it was um, it was something noble. Mm-hmm. Now in your when you talked about the substantive aspects of liberalism, and I've deliberately so far we're going to visit this, but I've deliberately made no distinction, uh, which is your view, between modern liberalism and classical liberalism. Uh, but we will get to that. Yeah. But in your discussion of substantive liberalism just now, you left out, I thought, an aspect that. You talk about a great deal in the book, which is equality. Mm-hmm. So talk about that and then if yeah. you'd like uh, – well, I'd like you to talk about the seven dispositions mm-hmm. of liberalism, which was a list I found very uh, to be very provocative and interesting.
1: Well, thanks. Uh, I, actually, I don't think I left it out in the, what I said about, to you about – so I just put it in the back door in a sneaky way. <laughs> I mean I said that liberalism is committed to the idea that as many people as possible should have as much control over their lives as feasible. The second part of that, the control over our lives, that is what we usually mean by liberty. Uh, I actually sort of prefer the the word that Kant used, which is autonomy. Autonomy means Mm -hmm. self-governance. That, to me, is fundamental to the idea of liberalism, that when you control your life, you are in charge, you're the captain of your fate, uh, and all of those sorts of images. I argue in the book that that idea of autonomy has to be understood in the context of European history, when, uh, the state and the church essentially combined, uh, and the combination of political and religious authority, what the political philosopher Mark Lilla calls, uh, political theology, uh, that, that those forces determined for you how you led your life. And it was against that combination, that, that invidious combination, that liberalism carved out this realm of autonomy, uh, that I, I am the captain of my faith. But I also argue that uh, as many people as possible uh, ought to have that kind of autonomy. That if autonomy is good for one person, it's good for as many people as possible, and that's the equality dimension. Um, you know, we're talking right now, April thirtieth, and uh, everyone uh, in the world outside our telephone conversation is talking about the swine flu. And I think of the relationship between equality and liberty as almost like what happens during a pandemic that uh, one person can't protect themselves against a contagious disease unless everyone is protected against the disease. And I think in a similar kind of way, it's really impossible to be autonomous without autonomy being equalized as much as possible. Not perfectly. It can never be perfect. But I can't live a life free of crime unless society takes some steps to reduce crime. And one of those steps it generally takes is to increase the amount of quality in order to reduce crime. So it's in that sense I think that equality and and liberty both go into that definition, and that one reinforces the other.
0: Well, it's interesting. That was a very subtle um, description about autonomy in a more interactive, uh, more integrated world compared to what you usually um, think of. And often some of the examples you use in the book, which 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 we'll talk about in a little bit, I'll, I'll quote some of them. But I think it's an interesting idea. Uh, to think about my ability to express what is human about me, my autonomy, my control, my mastery, my fate. If those around me uh, are not autonomous mm-hmm. and not free, uh, it'd be, it's, it's something akin to trading with a slave state, mm-hmm. um, You can have free borders, but if your neighbors don't have free borders, I still think it's a good idea to have free borders, Mm -hmm. but it certainly is a different enterprise when I'm interacting with people who are being coerced in various ways. Uh, But to me, that's simply a question that liberty should be as wide as possible. I think the fundamental question where I think we're going to disagree is what role do coercive powers of the state – what role should coercive powers of the state play in expanding autonomy or creating equality. So when you talk about equality, do you really just mean equality of autonomy? I think you mean something more than that.
1: Well, I mean equality of autonomy but not equality of liberty. I mean I did choose the word, and I'm more comfortable with the word autonomy for a reason because I think the notion of self-governance gets at things that what Isaiah Berlin would call negative liberty doesn't get at, that there's much more of an element of positive liberty in the idea of autonomy. Because autonomy implies capacity um, it isn't you know it isn't just the idea of being free from a coercive state it's the idea of having the capacity to actually live out the idea of autonomy and I know these are subtle distinctions, but I think I hope you get the drift anyway
0: I think it's really important and uh, we're all for subtle distinctions here mm-hmm. uh, let me actually let me read a quote from the book that I think relates to this um, and you can amplify amplify it or or um, modified it as you please. Uh, this quote, Modern liberalism promises equality through what Berlin calls a positive conception of liberty. It is not sufficient for me merely to be left alone. I must also have the capacity to realize the goals that I choose for myself. If this requires an active role for government, then modern liberals are prepared to accept state intervention into the economy in order to give large numbers of people the sense of mastery that free market capitalism gives only to the few. So that's does that's, that sum up
1: your That sums it up
0: pretty well. Yeah. So w- w- when you talk about mastery um what's the ability of the state to give mastery? Uh I think the state's tools for helping us achieve that seem very limited.
1: Oh, I don't know. What do you think so. what do you think? you know, at, one, at the most basic level. Yeah, what are you thinking? Um of? living below a certain level of subsistence it would seem to be almost by definition makes it impossible for you. Uh, to master your life, especially if, you know, I mean, we could start with the easy cases. Uh, if you're crippled, if you lose a spouse, I mean, there are all kinds of situations where uh, even the most committed laissez-faire state, in theory, even Margaret Thatcher's Britain, uh, or I think would would want to see the state help people establish autonomy under, you know, conditions where um, uh, they're simply unable for physical or other kinds of reasons to exercise that autonomy. I obviously want to go much further than that, though. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, uh, when you have a society uh, that is uh, uh, um, extraordinarily inegalitarian, that the pressures of modern society, unlike say, Adam Smith's society, but in the pressures of modern society, our society today, there is what I call in the book the inevitability of equality, that equality has become an idea that at a certain level uh, most people want in a certain way. They might not want it through the form of a welfare state, uh, but they want it in a very, very basic uh, sense. And so if people want it and they can't get it, um, any of the autonomy that the most unequal people have will be illusory, uh, subject to all kinds of violent shocks um, and, and not really stable. And it, it seems to me that any person committed to stable liberty, and even to a stable Capitalist market based liberty would want a fairly substantial amount of economy, uh, of equality to stabilize it. Um, I'd probably want more than you or other people, you know, but that's an argument over how much. But I I think in theory, that's why equality and autonomy have to go together at some level. I don't know any modern state, uh, willing to be, uh, to organize itself, any modern democratic state. Willing to organize itself along Hayekian lines, for example, you um, well, can talk a lot about it, and you know, uh, Thatcher was very inspired by Hayek, uh, yeah, but she
0: was constrained by her you know, political,
1: uh, by political forces. I, exactly, but those political forces are the congealing of modernity's insistence that that, that autonomy be uh, something that more than just a few people have.
0: Okay, well, let, let me disagree on the cripple example to use that as a template, since you thought that was the one that was mm-hmm. that even even Mar- Margaret Thatcher would would agree with, and I, I want to put her to the side. Yeah, I right. agree. I agree with you that she was. I think she'd read Hayek. Uh, she probably even understood him. Yeah. which is which is nice.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But I think um, she and and maybe she's a bit of a straw woman. Uh, those of us who are more skeptical of the power of the state mm-hmm. are not advocating that cripples should be by themselves Mm -hmm. and and forced to to fend for themselves. That's not our vision of of the good society. We're interested in voluntary mechanisms that Mm -hmm. would emerge that the state precludes. Mm -hmm. And so to me, equality is an interesting, you're not saying egalitarian, obviously You're, Mm -hmm. you're talking about something subtler than that, but I don't see why the state could not step aside in that situation and let Voluntary mechanisms Mm -hmm. help that person. Why wouldn't that be a liberal vision? I think it might
1: be in theory. Uh, And I think liberalism and libertarianism have a relationship. Um, And they emerge out of the same general um, concerns. I think where they part company, as I try to say in the book, is not on a matter of logic. It's not about logic. It's about sociology uh, as opposed to logic. That in principle, I think you're absolutely right – Uh, I think the difference really is that modern liberals, as I call them, uh, distrust um, the voluntary mechanisms, believe that those voluntary mechanisms have failed, Um, feel a kind of sense of urgency perhaps that they don't want to wait around for them, even if they might at some level succeed, um, and approach the whole issue as one of what's going to work uh, as well as possible um, in this world now. Um, and choose the state on that basis. Now, that's a choice that you may. It could be wrong. It could be right. But the wrong or right isn't at the level of principle, it seems to me, uh, although it is for libertarians. It's clearly at the level of principle for libertarians. But for liberals, the the argument is about practice. It's about what works and what, the, and what doesn't.
0: Yeah, and I think – go ahead. Sorry.
1: Well, you know – um, and so, you know, the only other thing I wanted to say is, you know, as you know, if you've looked at the book, and for people who listen to this to know, um, because it's experiential, I also argue in the book that there are certain points where liberals might want to question their faith in the state, because if the principle is making us autonomous and, uh, and spreading that autonomy as far as we can to as many people, I acknowledge that there may be situations where, in practice, experimentally, the state doesn't do that. And you ought to rely on something else. And the example I give is uh, an issue that I've followed with some interest and That's the whole issue of school choice uh, and vouchers and charter schools and so on. I I would agree with libertarians on that one particular issue. Um, I'm enormously uh, concerned about the commitment of political liberals or Democrats or whatever you want to call them, uh, to a uh, public school uh, uh, monopoly, in which a sense, in which in a sense they have the wealth to not send their kids to public schools, but want everyone else to go to them, and uh, I do think that uh, in that one particular situation, um, more people would be autonomous if there was more of a reliance on on as many different conceptions of schooling as possible. And since I'm here making concessions, <laughs> uh, I also concede in the book. Uh, that welfare reform was essential, uh, to a liberal and as well as perhaps a libertarian vision of the world because welfare, in my view, and Bill Clinton's view as well, not that I had any influence on Bill Clinton's view, uh, had come to the conclusion that welfare itself had created so much dependence that how could it be pursuing the goal of autonomy? Uh, and that something was needed to shake that system up and, and bring a greater appreciation of the idea of autonomy into. The world that, that welfare had created, and for many inner-city parents,
0: yeah, that's a nice example. And I think the, I think the issue really boils down to what you said uh, a few moments ago, which is it's a question of what works. Uh, there's sort of it feels a little silly, perhaps, to be uh, dividing libertarians into different camps since there there aren't very many of us anyway. Uh, but you could distinguish between Randian libertarians who are uh, self who push the virtue of self-interest and there's different versions of that. I don't want to, I don't want to parody it, but certainly a lot of free market economists defend free markets, not on the principle of liberty, although I, I do, but most, a lot of free market economists think of themselves merely as pragmatists Mm -hmm. and reject, modern liberalism on the basis that it doesn't work, that the law of unintended consequences means that minimum wage laws don't create more mm-hmm. autonomy. They price low-skilled people out of the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Unions uh, help members at the mm-hmm. expense of others. Regulations adopted with good motives mm-hmm. get captured by regulator- – regulators get captured by uh, business interests and then hurt the consumer and so on. So I think the the tough question – you know, there's a dispute I think, between what is pragmatic and practical, yeah. as well as a philosophical question of of what's, uh, you know, what is um, what is of deep value and what is, is right. superficial.
1: Well, I would agree with that. And, uh, you know, I'm no expert on libertarianism, but I am aware of certain kinds of splits and, you know, different approaches. And, you know, I, I would say from my perspective of writing as a liberal who's not particularly sympathetic to libertarianism, uh, that – uh, a Hayekian vision is much more compatible with the kind of liberalism that I'm talking about than a Randian one. Um, you know, you know from the book that I have a long disquisition about Romanticism, which I'm actually fascinated by. And to me, Ayn Rand is a romantic, um, and I'm very distrustful of all forms of romantic. There's something heroic. Yeah, uh, about her vision, and I'm not for heroes.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a good um, point.
1: On the other hand, while, so I'd be more sympathetic to a Hayek than to Iran. There's one thing about Hayek that bothers me, and I've had this argument. I was watching that a long ago, talking to a number of libertarians, and we were arguing about Hayek. Uh, and it not on the blogs, too, a little bit.
0: Yeah, you mentioned yeah. in
1: passing. Um, and I was going to get
0: thing- to it. I'm a big, uh, as a big fan of Hayek. I was going to get to that. So go yeah, ahead. Okay, let's get well, into it.
1: You know, I, I'm persuaded. That, you know, when Hayek wrote, you know, why I'm not a conservative and so on, um, I resonate with that. Uh, and when a real conservative like Russell Kirk goes and attacks libertarians as you know beneath contempt, my sympathies go to the libertarians rather than the Kirkians. But Hayek nonetheless bothers me, and the one specific thing that does relates to everything we started with today. Uh, this idea of uh, being in control of your life in some ways. I mean, I can find, I don't have it in front of me, I can find all kinds of passages from the road to serfdom and from other writings of Hayek where the great virtue of the market is that it makes things invisible to us. Um, it operates behind our backs. It, in a sense, almost coerces us into behaving in ways that we don't, aren't fully rational to us. Um, uh, and that's the side of it. I know that, Ikins would describe it that 's the side of it that bothers me. Um, if the state can make things more transparent that 's a good argument for me using the state
0: well that 's a great example. Uh, the reason I like it is that um, it really highlights what I think economics has to contribute to the discussion, although you' have, obviously you have a different interpretation mm-hmm. of it. Uh, let me give another quote yeah. uh, from the book which i which I really liked um. Under the influence of liberal ideas – and you're talking about going back into the past, uh, sort of this transformation that occurred from – in the 1787 to 1815 period, which is this extraordinary flowering of, of um, human expression and creativity and literature and philosophy and political change. So here's what you wrote. You said, under the influence of liberal ideas, people stopped believing that the conditions of their lives were determined by forces beyond their control – Rendering all efforts toward human improvement futile, and I think it wasn't. I don't remember what the full context of the quote, but you're not just saying that that people stopped believing this. There was a reason they stopped. I mean, it didn't wasn't just a change of beliefs. They had more autonomy. They had more. They had less futility. Uh, they weren't facing four or five hundred years of subsistence farming stretching ahead of them, or four, even four or five hundred years of working in a factory stretching ahead of them. What was what I what, what I want to challenge you with on this this indictment of Hayek or free market economists. You could add Milton Friedman to the list. I didn't see him in your in – your, you didn't blog on him, but you could have. This idea of the hidden side for me is the great mm-hmm. beauty of the market. It is what Bastiat called the seen and the unseen. Mm-hmm. We don't see the hidden effects of some of our policies. Uh, they're harder to identify. We only see the things that are the first-order changes that a policy might engender. And for me, the, the beauty of the marketplace is it decentralizes power. It's true that it's working behind the scenes, but mm-hmm. it's not being controlled by anyone. Mm-hmm. And it's the power of the state that is the great danger to put that mechanism, mm-hmm. that hidden set of, of natural – for me, very natural forces. This is the Rousseau in me, I guess. And Smith saw it, certainly described it as a divine set of hidden forces that work to create harmony. So I'm I'm surprised. I, I can understand you wouldn't like certain market outcomes. I don't see why the hiddenness of it is is a is a negative. What what
1: well, you ex- follows, expand on that? Yeah, Russ. It follows directly from the artifice and nature chapter. And the minute you said Rousseau, if you hadn't said him, I was going to say it because uh, it follows directly from that. You know, my understanding is that Hayek uh, toward the end of his life got sort of really fascinated by. Uh, evolutionary psychology or sociobiology by some of these other
0: neuroscience, you know, neuroscience very, yeah. and
1: things like that. And I know that some people who see themselves operating within that tradition, like uh, Virginia Postrel, for example, uh, you know, love that sort of almost automatic. What in in Hayek's days we don't really use this word anymore, but when Hayek was writing, it would have been called a sort of cybernetic view of the world.
0: Mm-hmm. It's also it's also an invisible hand metaphor. It's, it's a, the Smith it's metaphor. Definitely
1: an extension of the invisible hand. Metaphor. And there is a, you know, there's certainly an intellectual consistency there. But that's the side that I find troubling because to me, uh, and this is, you know, you really identified sort of the single rock bottom difference between what you're saying and what I'm saying Um, power is necessary uh, for people to live autonomous lives. Autonomy is not something that emerges against power but uses power. Um, and sees power as, in, as necessary, because it's, it's again, it's a you know the ideas that to me are so important about mastery and control are just synonyms for power. Uh, the powerlessness is the, the, the one condition where you can never be. Out there. If you're powerless, you can never be. Out there. You need empowerment. Is I guess the phrase that I would use. And you know we the, the word for all the suspicion that some people have about the word power. The word empowerment has more positive, I think, yes. connotations.
0: So it Really, we've
1: said this before, but this is a different way of articulating it and perhaps more helpful. How do we become empowered uh, is really the crucial question. Uh, and I think that uh, to the degree that we are operating uh, as a response to forces that aren't uh, visible to us and are behind our backs, so to speak, we might achieve a decent outcome, but we're not empowered to do so. But it's about us taking the power for ourselves, which I think um, you know, uh, requires a greater sense of uh, um, knowing what a full range of alternatives is rather than having those alternatives be invisible.
0: But for me, the crucial point is my ability to impose my will on you which is one form of power, it's yeah. not the only form. That's the scary one for me. Mm-hmm. Do we just think different things are scary? Okay. Because in you know, a market economy that's working well and we could I don't want to get into the details of that cuz that's a long other discussion yeah. about antitrust law and we could debate that, mm-hmm. but uh, power is diffused, mm-hmm. right? My power is only I only have power to the extent I can get you to buy my services as a as a a worker, or buy my product if I'm a, a seller of a good. I have no power over you. I have to entice you. That's the whole. That's now I'm going to be. I'm a little romantic about it, which is pretty rare. Most economists aren't romantic at all. But that romance is very appealing to me. That that fact that I can't coerce you. I've got to get you to interact with me voluntarily. That limits my power over you. Now it's true. Not everybody's going to have as much say in that conversation. If you don't have skills. Uh, you're gonna be you're gonna have challenges than if when you do have skills. Uh but there's you know the the beauty of this whole what I would call liberal, classically liberal, uh economic enterprise is that in the Smithian and Ricardo Ricardian view of, of our interactions, there's room for everybody.
1: Well you're more the economist than I am. I, I tend to see Smith and Ricardo differently, but you know, this is not my uh Real expertise. so I'm willing to defer on this, but uh, to me, Smith has a kind of very optimistic, forward-looking view of the world. Where the Ricardian world is, you know, iron laws of wages, and it just seems so much do- enough. Darker.
0: No, I agree with you. I uh, agree with and, and that. Not
1: as committed to the Enlightenment.
0: Smith is shockingly optimistic, actually, especially in the theory of moral sentiments. He, he is yeah. almost rosy uh, compared to some of his yeah. other writing. Well,
1: um,
0: well, let's turn. Let's turn to something else. Uh, you talked in passing about uh, the appeal of evolutionary psychology to, to some folks. You have some very interesting in the libertarian camp. It's some very interesting things to say about it in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh it's the determinism determinism of it that you find uh, unattractive. Talk about that.
1: Yeah, well that, you know, I guess if any one part of the book I like the most, <laughs> it's the chapter on evolutionary psychology and so you know, out there in um, out there in the real world, uh you have uh, you had this in Dover, Pennsylvania. You have it in a number of places where you get fundamentalist Christians saying, We want to, you know, teach um, that God created the world and uh, uh, we hate Darwin and we hate everything uh, associated with theory evolution. And then you've got Darwinists and, you know, they sort of tend to be atheists, uh, most of them, and uh, they're writing angry you know, atheists. Angry yeah. atheists, right? Like Richard Dawkins, or, or Daniel Bennett. They're, they're sort of writing. You know, the new atheism, as it's called, uh, Sam Harris and other they're, they're, they're all one way or another in that camp. So, this would seem to be sort of almost a fundamental argument, like the one that, you know, we had during the year of the Enlightenment with Altair being the skeptic and other people defending the Catholic Church and so on. Uh, but one of my arguments is there's actually very little difference between those two camps, that they both have an illiberal conception of human purpose. That for the Calvinists, for the uh, uh, fundamentalists. Uh, everything is predetermined uh, through a theory of predestination, that God has already chosen our fate, that we have no autonomy in this world because God's already settled on the question of what's going to happen to us in the next world. Uh, and we sort of live here in this world as alien creatures, not really in charge of our lives, you know, just waiting for God's judgment to be visited upon us. Whereas for the sociobiologist we are not driven by original sin, but we're driven by our genes, by things that are inside us, just like Calvinists believe our sins are inside us, but are not subject to our own rational control. Um, and that, uh, as a result, we're also at the mercy of forces we can never understand. I mean, this is probably more true of the pop... I'm, re- I'm really talking about the popularizers of sociobiology. Uh, but uh, my best example is a book that became a bestseller by Dan Gilbert, Called stumbling toward happiness, in which everything we think we're doing is wrong. Uh, we have good outcomes. Uh, I point out in the in the book that uh, uh, Daniel Gilbert is actually he never mentions uh, Mandeville's Fable of the Bees, but That's it's exactly point. the same kind of argument. Now, since the book was written, um, since you're an economist, you know we we've had all these new books by behavioral economists by people like Dan Ariely, Predictably Irrational, and so on, and they're very much in the same sort of thing. I mean, I find myself—you've uh, mentioned Milton Friedman before. Uh, I wrote a piece in the Republic not long ago, in which I said, "Give me Milton Friedman any day over uh, Dan Ariely."
0: Because uh, wh- explain know. why? Well, that- at least
1: you know, at least in Friedman's view, we can we can determine what's in our self-interest.
0: Uh, or he may have been overly, you might, some might say economists are overly uh, optimistic about well, yeah, our right. rationality. Right, they are overly,
1: this, definitely, but at least I'd rather, <laughs> you know, I, I'd rather picture us as rational, even if not quite so mon- monomaniacally rational. Uh, but this idea that we're fundamentally irrational, that we never know, I mean, that strikes me we're as bo- a far more reactionary idea. So even why though. Why
0: reactionary? Hmm? Why reactionary? Well,
1: you know, even though I would imagine that some of the people who are doing behavioral economics, or at least this sort of popularization of it, think of themselves as more on the left than the Friedmanites. Yep. Uh, no I doubt. think their vision is much more reactionary.
0: In I mean, what it's, way? It's a
1: pre-enlightenment idea. Um, it's uh, it's not based on religion, because as I said, they're atheists, but it's based on something that I find even more disturbing in many ways than religion, and that's scientism. Uh, not science. I'm a big fan of science. But scientism, the sort of use of uh, bastardization of science to make arguments about human purpose and the human condition, I find are very disturbing. So one of the arguments in my book is that liberalism emerged, this idea of autonomy and self-governance and equality, emerged as a reaction against religion. But religion is no longer a threat to it. Religion has been really tamed, and I I think liberals should welcome religion. And I have a chapter, you know, on that, why religion is good for Mm liberalism. To me, the enemy of liberalism these days is not religion, it's scientism, and in particular, sociobiology in those forms, which seem to me to be a huge fairy tale about why our efforts to control the world around us are always out of our grasp and we will constantly be frustrated if we try to uh, uh, act in an enlightened way.
0: Well, you'll be happy to know that that Hayek was a big critic of of economics as often a form of scientism, Uh a a false uh, appearance of science. with this patent of mathematics and yeah. and statistical sophistication, when in fact it was, um, as you might say, a fairy tale.
1: Yeah, uh, I car- didn't know that. I knew that about Schumpeter. Yeah, who I also mention in the book occasionally is something of a, a, a bit of a romantic himself. But, yes, uh, definitely. The last great economist not to do math. I am. Yeah.
0: Well, there's a few I hope still alive. Yeah. That's my hope. Uh, but I want to I want to pin you down on the on the evolutionary psychology. Mm. Why do you think it's dangerous? This view, this yeah. sort of it's. It's depressing. Uh, this sort of pessimistic view that we're creatures of our genes and we can't, we don't really have the autonomy that we think we have. Mm-hmm. But you're really making two claims. One is you're saying it's bad science; it's overblown. Yeah. There's not any evidence. For, there's not, not sufficient evidence for the claims they make on its behalf. But you also find it dangerous to the liberal enterprise, and that's the part I'm a little bit. I'd like you to expand. Yeah. I don't see that yet.
1: Well, because science is really the chief source of our authority. I, As I said earlier to you, liberalism emerged, you know, when God was a source of our authority. um, And and God's view was held to be authoritative. Um, You know, the only thing comparable to that these days is that science claims great authority over us. And so to, to hide the idea of irrationality behind the notion that when someone says human beings cannot control their lives... But this is not just my opinion. This is what science proves. That's what I think is the danger. Now, I don't think science proves it. and I think none of those books really prove it. Um, It's all speculation. But there is an effort to claim the mantle of science to trump an argument, to nail it down and say, you know, you might think that the world should be differently, but science proves that the world is exactly the way it is. That's, that's I think, where the danger
0: comes. Yeah, I find, by the way, just as a, a side note, I find the so-called evidence for a lot of that work to be uh, comically uh, yeah. Uh, unconvincing.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, you know, some experiment in a, in a classroom right. that I doubt could be replicated, but oh, one it's, time... It's
1: unbelievable. Arielli's experiments, you know, I mean, they're inventive and they're They're ingenious. very
0: clever, but a lot they're of them clever, but, are but, oh, highly skeptical.
1: I mean, to me, I'm I'm writing another book now, and dealing with a similar kind of issue that in the 1950s the psychological experiment that was the great rage was the Milgram experiment yep. you know and, and all know. these conclusions were drawn from it
0: <laughs> we're all Nazis potentially yeah, and, it
1: was and totally riven with methodological errors so serious as to be left out of court yeah and yep. yet it gets there in the popular so that's why I'm worried you know now maybe the same thing won't happen again
0: well it worries me i mean I, there's sort of two grounds for worry one is the it's intellectually i think Wrong, potentially parts of. It, I don't want to overstate it. I think there, obviously, yeah. there we have our moments of irrationality. I've been very uh, yeah. obsessed with confirmation bias and other problems in the last uh, few months as the economy's done what it's done. But uh, for me, the real danger is is that, it, and again, I it's hard to bring it back to Hayek. Mm. Hayek was very worried as as, um, as some of us are about the power of experts to mm-hmm. to claim. More knowledge yeah. than 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 we have as individuals. Mm-hmm. That for Hayek, a lot of the essence of of the social problem was was the knowledge problem. The fact that knowledge right. was diffused. So for someone to claim that he knows better than I do of what's in my own self interest because he's wise and I'm a poor irrational fool, to me that just opens the door for totalitarianism of the worst kind. Mm-hmm. And and I, I worry about modern liberalism's embrace of paternalism in that way. I think that's uh, a da- to me that's the slippery slope.
1: Yeah, the, you know the slight difference I think here is that I see some of the tendencies you're worried about. Um, I try to argue that to some degree they're they're actually much more um, characteristic of what I would call modern progressivism rather than modern liberalism.
0: An interesting distinction. Uh,
1: the kind of Wilsonian. I mean, yeah. Wilson is a. Walter Wilson's fascinating politics because, you know, he's a Democrat and I guess he's kind of a liberal, but
0: Considered he's a progressive. And yeah.
1: one way to think about what progressivism is, uh, I go back again to Immanuel Kant, uh, whose most famous sentence he ever wrote, which is Isaiah Berlin quotes in everything he ever writes, <laughs> is that out of the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing can ever be made. And I argue that progressivism. Distrust the crooked timber of humanity. It wants to straighten it out. Right. Whereas liberalism is more, seeks many of the same goals as progressivism, but is more willing to pursue indirect ways of achieving it, more willing to recognize that there's an ironic dimension to the world, that there are, you know, what we once used to call in sociology unanticipated consequences to our purpose of action. Mm-hmm. And you've got to be more sensitive to those things. I don't think, I mean, Albert Hirschman wrote this book about conservative, uh, um, what were they called, uh, fallacies or something like that, uh, and one of them was what he called the resignation, that uh, if you uh, see that unanticipated consequences are always there, the problem is that if you resign yourself to not doing anything, yeah, that's what he calls a conservative, and I think he's right. For me, liberals have to be aware that the crooked timber of humanity is out there, that there are unanticipated consequences, but you've got to try anyway you can't be that's right futility authorities you can't just say it's futile to try
0: well you know it's a great example because both the Nazis and the communists on left and right were very eager to straighten that timber out in their own repugnant ways, and it you is know, that's uh, what bothered
1: Berlin so much yeah now I think berlin who's i I'm very influenced by him and deeply appreciative of him, I think he did go overboard in his worries and that he identified positive liberty with totalitarianism, I don't think there's an inevitable linkage there at all, um, and that it is possible to have a conception of positive liberty that can, contributes to human flourishing and stops very, very well short of totalitarianism.
0: By positive and liberty. liberty even
1: protects you against it.
0: And just to remind us again, the positive liberty would be an intervention on the part of the state to create well, opportunities. So. it's philosophically,
1: that's the means. Uh, but uh, philosophically, the, the idea is that uh, um, whatever rights I possess as a human being need some realization in the world as opposed to just being abstract rights. So that, you know, I mean, you can get into all kinds of examples, but if, uh, I don't know how much you want to argue about it, you know, but if, if you interpret free speech to mean that uh, corporations... Uh, should be allowed to donate as much money as they want to politics because um, they have free speech too. Um, a positive conception of liberty would say, well, if you create the playing field such that um, it's all uh, that, that anybody you know can pour anything they want into campaign speech, then some people are essentially going to get the right to speak, and some people aren't. And when uh, and if you're really concerned with effective speech, you have to take positive steps. To make the playing field fair, you probably disagree but... Well, I'm
0: not sure I feel about that. I'm not. Uh, I would. The only contrarian thing I would say to that is is the tragedy that, given the current level of the power of the state, unfortunately, sometimes corporate donations to, for, in my view, lead to outcomes that help consumers, despite the motivations of the corporations. But certainly, uh, corporations' influence on the political process is is uh, is overwhelmingly. Uh, not good, and I want a I want a less powerful state where corporations don't have that incentive. Mm-hmm. That that's what disturbs me, yeah, I, and right. I think the whole issue of corporate fi- of uh, excuse me of uh, campaign finance is is a bit of a red herring. Mm-hmm. I to, I'd argue that you can get rid of the the money in politics. Is um, that's a to me a, a really dangerous form of romance. Mm-hmm. But I, 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 let's turn to something else because I I, I want to find some more common ground and and some of the really I think inspiring parts of the book. Both modern and classical liberals can agree on, even if you, as the author, don't think uh, that classical liberals are, um, are a fair um, – cat- uh, what do I want a category or a useful category. Uh, and you, I just want to mention this again. You, you consider Smith a modern liberal, that he would be –
1: No, uh, I, would, I, I reject the distinction. Right. All. Okay. I, I just think there's a constant stream of liberals, <laughs> and I don't like calling some classical and others modern. Uh, I think they had an underlying similar conception.
0: I guess the you know the, the question would be is it a useful distinction or not and right. I, I like your I like your argument i don't i don't agree with it but I think mm-hmm. it's an interesting one. but I want to come back to a place where we 're in agreement, which is uh, the hopefulness about the future. Mm-hmm. Um, you spend a lot of time in the book in the early stages talking about this conception of humanity and and and, and human nature itself as to and you talked already about the evolutionary psychology being a very um, deterministic aspect view of human nature. But in your view of liberalism, one, we didn't get to the seven dispositions. But one, one of the you – could, you could list some of them now if you'd like because I, like, I think they're very interesting. And, and one key part of it is, is a view toward, of hopefulness that the world can be improved even if mankind can't be.
1: Well, you know, um, I could run through seven. Um, I do. Go ahead. I think – no, I think I'll just mention a couple. Uh, yeah. I talk about what I call a disposition to grow. By which I mean that liberals believe that human beings are not necessarily, um, or not necessarily, be uh, defined by who they are now, but what they're capable of becoming. This is an idea that John Stuart Mill borrowed from a, a German philosopher, Humboldt, and made central to his essay on liberty. Uh, that uh, development, a as the Germans call it, this this is a crucial feature of liberalism that we grow into things so that we should picture ourselves as much as we can as fully developed uh in in some sense uh a, a an inclination to deliberate uh i think liberals are committed to a process of arguing things through uh and uh, uh talking uh is is very very important there's a certain strains of conservative i talk a lot about a german actually a nazi named karl schmidt who thought deliberation was the crucial feature of liberalism and its crucial flaw Hmm. Because he advocated what he called decisionism, as opposed to deliberation. Just making decisions, deliberating is weakness, and you should never be weak. That that kind of thing. <laughs> well,
0: we uh, we had Cass Sunstein on, and he mm-hmm. in his uh, his book. Um, which I'm forgetting the title of right now, but uh, he has that nice book on the different ways we make decisions, and he yeah. contrasts voting and prediction markets and deliberation, and and in the vein of behavioral economics to some extent, he critique he's critical of deliberation as yeah. often leading to an illusion of weighing some of the, There's a lot of there's a lot of imper, experimental evidence yeah. and empirical studies that suggest that deliberation, the liberal view of it, isn't all it's cracked up to be. But but I would say. That you and I are deliberating right now—that's yeah. uh, that, what I think is is a grand human enterprise—is is conversation and mm-hmm. sharing ideas and going back and forth.
1: Yeah. Well, that's great. That's, that's, I certainly love it.
0: <laughs> so, but but talk about that the the hopefulness for the future because I think uh, I really you mentioned Virginia yeah. Postrel. Virginia Postrel wrote an interesting book right. about dynamism versus stasis, yeah. Yeah. and I you make the contrast between the liberal who is open to change and open to the future, and the left and the right which are distrustful yeah. of it. So talk about that.
1: Well, you know, I uh, I'll take an example, immigration. Um, I see both left and the right, you know, raising all kinds of questions about immigration. To me, liberals should be all in favor of immigration, not only for economic reasons, but because of the cultural diversity. It brings and because of the sense of globalization sort of undermining, uh, underlying the whole idea um there's a i i wrote the book because of i saw a number of liberals becoming very fearful of the future um there's this uh, writer for the new republic paul berman who wrote a book about terror and liberalism and while he's defending liberalism against the terrorist it's almost like in his view the terrorist has all the advantages that his clandestine conspiratorial attitude gives him certain advantages and I wanted to say, well, you know, you could see that at a superficial level, but open societies have much greater advantages in any clash of civilizations than closed conspiratorial ones. And, and that's the sense that I think liberalism needs to recover, that the, the openness, the disposition to grow, the disposition to be open uh, to deliberate, that all of these things are, in fact, uh, make us, us liberal societies, more broadly speaking, uh, give us great advantages in the world, and we shouldn 't be running from them
0: it's a great point you know if you think back to the debates of the fifties and sixties when we i think overestimated the uh economic success of the Soviet yeah. Union and communism generally, yeah. we said well of course they 're going to do better they right. you know they 're going to control things of course they 'll be more successful yeah. in war they can they can kill their soldiers right. if they disobey and yet it turned out. They weren't so successful. The American soldier in war was extraordinarily successful, and the American entrepreneur was much more successful yeah. fundamentally because of the knowledge problem we talked about earlier. Yeah. In these closed and fearful societies, hidden for whatever reason, uh, knowledge is not going to get aggregated in, uh, through any mechanism, be it a market mechanism or anything else. And as a result, they're at an enormous disadvantage yeah. in most things. They have their own advantages, but in general, we have many, many strengths
1: that's a very good example.
0: And it's a shame that we uh, we don't we don't appreciate them and we often fail to exploit them sufficiently. Yeah. Probably. Uh, well, well thanks. It's yeah, we're almost out of time. I'd just like you to close on one thought, which I know you've been writing about, and uh, that is religion in America. Mm-hmm. Obviously, a big topic, but I want you to just uh, I'd like you to comment on something that we've talked about here on Econ Talk a while back, which is the un- unusual nature of America. Not not the one you point out in a right. recent article, which is, for a wealthy society, we're awfully religious, which is true. We're unusually religious. But this aspect of the marketplace for religious ideas yeah. and how religion has thrived in America because there is no state. Could you comment on that? Because I know yeah, you have in some fact, that's a good interesting point to things add to say. I
1: can throw you out a bone of agreement, complete agreement, hey, hey. because I, I actually think that uh, – You know, the use of economic models to describe American religion actually works. I think that the First Amendment to the Constitution, which guarantees separation of church and state, which was written in 1787, was written in exactly the same environment as Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations. I think that when Smith says that uh, we can promote efficiency by avoiding cartels and monopolies, the same is true of religion, that a state religion is a monopoly or a cartel, and where you have a state religion, religion dies. Um, and where you have a free market in religion, it flourishes. And the United States versus Europe is a sort of classic case. You look at all the European societies with a state church, and you see religion, no one coming to those churches. You come to this country where it's all voluntary, it's unbelievable. So there's one area of complete agreement between us.
0: We have many, Alan. I, I just, uh, in closing, I want to say uh, the book by Cass Sunstein I was trying to think of was Infotopia. Okay. Uh, but your book is uh, the future of liberalism. Is that did I get the title right?
1: You got absolutely got it
0: right. Um, and I want to thank uh, I want to thank you. My guest today has been Alan Wolf of Boston College. Thanks for being part of Econ Talk.
1: Thank you. It's been a great conversation.